the UN Security Council had every opportunity to stop the Darfur genocide. Instead, they just stood by and watched. By the end of 2005, over a million children had been displaced by the conflict. Welcome to Society of Strife. Now, before I get started with the show, thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me. Also, please give the show a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you aren't on Apple, you can just do it on iTunes. Now, I know it takes a minute or five to sign in, but it would really mean a lot to me. Now, if you like the show and would like to keep up with me, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Society of Strife or just type Society of Strife in the search bar. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Society of Strife. By the way, I added a feature to the Society of Strife page on Facebook. You can now talk to me directly on WhatsApp. Just go to the page and click on the WhatsApp link. To be honest, I'm totally looking forward to having a chat with my fellow strifers. Now, if you really, really like the show and appreciate the amount of work I put into this show, please show some love on patreon.com forward slash society of strife or on buymeacoffee.com forward slash society of strife. That's patreon.com forward slash society of strife or buymeacoffee.com forward slash society of strife but they buy me a coffee is one word buy me a coffee you know how to write internet addresses so moving on ah yeah by the way you can even do both so this week we'll look at the Darfur genocide in detail and discover when it started how different events coalesced to form the world's first genocide in the 21st century next week we'll look at the year 2006 onwards and talk about the role of the ICC in trying to bring justice to the victims. We'll even investigate the alleged use of chemical weapons by the government of Sudan on the civil population in Darfur. Now, about the ICC, I'd like to look at something that happened along the course of the week. So, earlier this week, I was researching this epi- when I was researching this episode, I came across an Al Jazeera post on Twitter. Uh, for those who don't know what Al Jazeera is, it's a company kind of like CNN, like they cover world news 24 hours a day. So on Twitter, I saw that US Vice President Kamala Harris had told Benjamin Netanyahu that the, I don't know if he's Israeli PM anymore because I remember seeing that they're still doing elections again, like the fourth time. So anyway, Benjamin Netanyahu, she told him that the US doesn't support the investigation by the ICC into war crimes that may have been committed by Israel in Gaza and the West Bank. Now, if you ask me, or at least if you ask Netanyahu, he'll tell you that ICC is anti-Semitic and it doesn't support Israel's right to defend itself from quote-unquote Palestinian terrorists. But you need to understand something about this war. Of, of course, we'll be covering it in detail, but just some things that I'd like to talk about. So, number one, Israel's war against Gaza and other Palestinian territories is asymmetric. Now, what that means is that one side of the war is vastly more powerful than the other. So already there's an issue when it comes to international law. Number two, I'd like there's a number I'd like to talk about. And that number is 1 in 250. You see, for, as, for every Israeli killed... Whether he's a military officer or a civilian, the Israeli military kills at least 250 
Palestinians in exchange. Most of them are civilians because they use airstrikes and as we all know airstrikes are not the most precise form of warfare. Number three is as of 2015 Palestine is a signatory of the Rome Statute. Now that means that the ICC is within its mandate to investigate Israel for war crimes. Now the law applies whether the perpetrator is a signatory or not. In other words, if you commit a war crime in a country that is a signatory of the Rome Statute, the ICC can prosecute. Whether you remember or not is irrelevant. Something else I'd like to add. The US stance on such matters is proving problematic because uh, was it this year or last year when Trump sanctioned the ICC because it said it would investigate the US military's actions in Iraq and Afghanistan? Again, Iraq and Afghanistan are both signatories of the Rome Statute. The US should not disagree and say that it will investigate its own actions because just like in many cases of police brutality, the people who may or may not have committed these crimes cannot be allowed to investigate themselves. So the US government should ask themselves, how is everyone around the world supposed to listen to you guys and your opinions on matters such as the Myanmar military coup and the fate of the Uyghur Muslims in China if you will not hold yourselves to higher standards? See right now, the message that the US is sending, which began under Trump, is that US allies will be allowed to do just about anything, but non-allies will be held to higher standards. As of now, the sanctions against the ICC officials are still in place and the US has refused to sanction Mohammed bin Salman on his culpability in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So we'll be covering these topics in detail at a later date. But I just felt I had to get this off my chest and onto yours. So something else I'd like to comment on is Meghan and Harry and their, well, explosive interview with Oprah. Now I'm not interested in the celeb gossip of it all but there's something i'd like people to note as they are busy accusing megan of all sorts of nasty and vicious things perspective see perspective is very important so i'd like to ask all those judgmental people out there to place themselves in their shoes you see how would you feel if you quite aware of the color of your skin married into an all-white family and all of a sudden they started be behaving differently towards you than they do with everyone else who has married into the same family. Yeah, you all know who I'm referring to. See, people are very quick to point out at the wedding, uh, point out at the wedding, saying that someone who was racist wouldn't have spent so much on it. Well, there's something I'd like to inform you on. The wedding was a public event. See, Harry and Meghan had already gotten married earlier. And just to show you how out of touch the royal family is, Prince William said on Thursday, that's yesterday if you're listening to this episode on the date comes out. He said that the royal family wasn't at all racist. Now, if you're on the same page with me, you're asking yourself, how is he, the literal symbol of white privilege, know anything about racism? How would he know anything about racism? Anyway, that aside, let's get on with the show. Before you start listening to this part, please make sure you've listened to the earlier episodes. The earlier episode that is uh, part one of the Darfur genocide. So to cover the genocide completely, we have to travel back in time to the year 2003. This is the year the genocide began. So let's start on February 26th, 2003. So the Sudanese revolutionary forces 
attacked a Sudanese military garrison at the town of Golu. Nearly 200 soldiers were killed. That was the official start of the genocide, or at least of the war because it became a genocide much, much later. On March 2003, fighting broke out in the Darfur region of Western Sudan between the Sudanese armed forces and the Sudanese revolutionary forces, which included the Sudanese Liberation Army, or SLA, as we mentioned last week, and the Justice and Equality Movement. On April 2003, refugees from Darfur flowed into eastern Chad, and tens of thousands also became internally displaced within Darfur as the Sudanese armed forces and Janjaweed counterattacked against government installations by the SLA and the JEM. The former did so by attacking rebel strongholds, as well as carrying out indiscriminate attacks on the villages of ethnic Darfuri people. At the same time, Darfur rebels launched attacks against Sudanese military and police forces in Nyala and El-Fashir. The El-Fashir attack resulted in the death of more than, 30 government office, uh, more than 30 government soldiers, the destruction of several military aircraft, and the capture of the commander of the Sudanese Air Force Base. So when the war started, the SLA were ahead because they struck first. But unfortunately for them, they were outnumbered and the government was just about to start striking back. So in September 2003, a ceasefire was agreed upon by the SLA and the government of Sudan. The government of Sudan promised to address the complaints of the rebels, as I mentioned last week. The complaints of the rebels include the neglect of black Africans by the government of Sudan, the lack of equal justice in the courts, and inequality in education, as well as in the workplace. Soon after, each side accused the other of breaking the agreement. On October 2003, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, or UNHCR, called for over $16 million to meet the needs of the Sudanese refugees who had fled to Chad. The government of Sudan, in the same month, restricted access to the refugees by delaying or outrightly denying travel permits to Darfur. December 2003, UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordination, Ian Egland, asserted that Darfur, quote, had quickly become one of the humanitarian crises in the world, end quote. Also in December 2003, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan stated that he was alarmed by human rights violations and lack of humanitarian access in Darfur. Has anyone else noticed that this is the same playbook used by the Saudis in Yemen? I mean, it's hardly surprising that there's a bunch of the Sudanese military in Yemen aiding the Saudi-led coalition. See, just like the Sudanese military tried to wipe out the ethnic Darfuris, the Saudi-led coalition is trying to wipe out the Houthis and both sides have created the worst humanitarian crisis in modern history. By the end of the year 2003, it was estimated that over half a million people had been displaced from Darfur and that up to a million individuals were in need of humanitarian aid. Shortly after, the UNHCR announced plans to establish refugee camps further inside Chad in an effort to stave off the ongoing attacks against refugees in camps along the Chad-Sudanese border. It is now estimated that approximately 100,000 Darfuri refugees 
had sought refuge in Chad. In one year, the war in Darfur had evolved into a genocide, thus making the fastest evolution of a war in modern history. So let's talk about the horrors that 2004 brought to Darfur, Sudan. In January 2004, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Committee on Conscience that sounds fancy, Committee on Conscience issued a genocide warning for Darfur expressing concern that the organized violence underway could result in genocide. In the same month, over a single week, 18,000 refugees entered Chad as the Janjaweed intensified their attacks in Darfur. The UN Special Envoy for Humanitarian Affairs at the time, Tom Vrasen, traveled to N'Djamena, Chad, and called for the government of Sudan and the SLA to resume peace talks. He also called on the government of Sudan to allow greater access to humanitarian aid. Well, from the fact that we have this episode on the show, it is probably safe to assume that the talks weren't successful. In February 2004, Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir promised to grant aid workers greater access to internally displaced people, or IDPs. As a result, the UN called for a rapid humanitarian response. The UN continued deploying aid to Darfur through February, but the IDPs in Darfur complained that the aid being, pro being provided to them was being stolen by Janjaweed militias. To put, it, to put this in perspective, what used to happen was this. Aid workers arrived in the day with aid, but left before nightfall for safety purposes. But after they left, the Janjaweed showed up at these aid camps at night and stole the aid. I mean, how decent. Because of these claims, the UN Undersecretary General deployed a UN Disaster and Assessment Coordination Team to Darfur. In March 2004, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, issued a report that claimed attacks by the Janjaweed were taking place on a daily basis across Darfur. In April 2004, the UN began ramping up calls for the support of the international community in ending what, what was rapidly becoming an obvious campaign of ethnic cleansing carried out by the government of Sudan and the Janjaweed. The UN Security Council issued a presidential statement of concern regarding the humanitarian situation in Darfur and called for a ceasefire. In the same month, a fact-finding mission was launched by the UNHCR to find out the extent of human rights violations in Darfur. They were to find out from refugees scattered across camps in Chad. UN Secretary General Kofi Annan publicly referred to the war in Darfur as a genocide, which was seen as a major step on the way towards peace. The UN continued to call for an intervention by the international community but the Security Council failed to reach an agreement. Countries like Russia and Algeria abstained from voting on the motion. In June 2004, Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir ordered all quote-unquote illegally armed groups to disarm as reports continued to flood out of Darfur regarding bombings by Antonov planes operated by the Sudanese armed forces, the rape of ethnic Darfuris by the Janjaweed, and the murder of people who tried to escape from internment camps set up by the Janjaweed.
The U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes, Pierre Prosper, stated that, quote, I can tell you that we see indicators of genocide and there is evidence that points in that direction. End quote. Wow, that's the world's most ambiguous statement. There is evidence that points in that direction. There is either genocide or there isn't. On June 30th, 2004, Kofi Annan arrived in Sudan for a three-day visit to Khartoum, Darfur, and Chad. Annan met with the government of Sudan and the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, Colin Powell, concerning the Darfur crisis. Colin Powell asked the Sudanese government to bring Janjaweed under control and to begin negotiations with the Sudanese Liberation Army and the Justice and Equality Movement. The next month, July, Kofi Annan traveled to refugee camps in eastern Chad. The refugees told Annan of various human rights abuses perpetrated by the Janjaweed in Darfur. Meanwhile, Colin Powell told the Sudanese government that the only way relations between the U.S. and Sudan would, could be normalized was if the government of Sudan made immediate efforts to rein in the Janjaweed cause. Truth be told, as of 2004, Janjaweed was causing more problems in Darfur than the government itself. In fact, it had made it, had made it a priority to target civilians, killing and terrorizing them in the process. Now, for anyone wondering why Kofi Annan would listen to the refugees, because most people would consider a refugee statement to be biased, or at least to be from a single perspective. Well, I've created a, a little sidetrack for you. Now, first-person accounts of genocidal acts are valuable for various reasons. Number one, they serve as testimony to what individuals and their communities experienced and witnessed. Number two, solid first-person accounts provide a deeper account of what is going on in a conflict than any secondary sources. Compare reading a story on a blog to hearing it from someone who actually experienced it. In many cases, these accounts can be used in a court of law as evidence. So we will talk about such a case when I cover the Srebrenica genocide. So if it wasn't for first-person accounts, I wouldn't have been able to create this episode. Anyway, back to July 2004. So after the pressure piled on by Colin Powell, the UN and Sudan signed a joint statement in which each side pledged to end the conflict in Darfur. The Sudanese government insisted that it would disarm the Janjaweed, bring justice to those responsible for human rights violations, protect those in IDP camps, resume peace talks with the SLA and JEM, and remove any obstacles to providing humanitarian assistance. The UN and Sudan government also agreed to establish a joint implementation mechanism to monitor the agreement. Wait, hold up a second. Doesn't that sound too good to anyone? I mean, first, you're busy wiping out a bunch of people and then all of a sudden you just make a U-turn and say, oh, you know what? We admit to having made a couple of mistakes in the past. We'll try changing that with, with just a pen and a piece of paper. Now, I hope no one was stupid enough to believe them. After the meeting with the Sudanese government, Kofi Annan left the country warning of quote-unquote catastrophic 
levels of suffering. He didn't even hang around to confirm whether the government would do what they had promised. Hey, you know what? Maybe he had a meeting with Oprah to complain about the mistreatment he had received at the hands of al-Bashir. Just saying. Kofi Annan should have really stuck around because barely a week after he left, the UNHCR reported that militias with ties to the Sudanese government had destroyed food and water resources in the Jabal Mara area in western Darfur, Sudan. After the UNHCR released that statement, the government of Sudan sent a thousand police officers to Darfur to quote-unquote maintain law, security and order. Ultimately, the force would grow to number 6,000 and include medics, traffic and riot police. On July 15, 2004, the first joint implementation meeting took place, but two days later, on the 18th, the SLA and the JEM broke off peace talks in Addis Ababa, the capital, of, uh, the capital of Ethiopia. They insisted that they wouldn't continue to take part unless the government agreed to leave Darfur and disarm the Janjaweed. This caused the, the Sudanese government to change tactics and pressure the IDPs to return to their villages in Darfur, even though they were still afraid of Janjaweed and their own government. In July alone, the number of people in refugee camps increased by 100,000. That's how bad the conflict had gotten even after the UN and the Sudanese government had signed a joint statement. That number worried the US so much that on July 22, 2004, the US House of Representatives passed HR Resolution 467 declaring the conflict in Darfur to be a case of genocide and urged the U.S. government to take more robust action to intervene. The U.S. Senate, without dissent, unanimously concurred. Those were the days before Trump. Now the Republicans would all dissent. The Democrats would dissent, and then they'd start insulting each other on Twitter, with Republicans saying that the Democrats want to open their borders to Sudanese immigrants, and Fox News indirectly alleging that, the, that it was a plot by the liberals to add more blacks who will then overwhelm the police. And if you think I'm being biased, check out this new deal that, they ju that Biden just signed into law, 1.9 trillion. Not a single Republican voted on that, like they all voted no, which is interesting because right now, I wish I was American. I mean, $1,400, I could use that kind of cash right now. So I'm not being biased. I'm just being honest. Anyway, moving on to July 22nd, the same day that the House of Representatives and the Senate passed the resolution, Kofi Annan and Colin, and Colin Powell asked the international community to place even more pressure on the Sudanese government just to make sure the government stuck to the promises it made. Well, I guess they were smart enough not to buy the first promise that came way too easily. The next day, Kofi Annan and Colin Powell forced the leaders of the SLA and JEM to return to the negoti negotiating table five days after they'd left. After eight days passed without any progress from the government in terms of militia disarmament, the U.S. decided that things were moving too slowly and introduced a draft resolution at the U.N. which threatened sanctions against Sudan. The resolution passed the next day, giving the government of Sudan 30 days to completely dismantle the Janjaweed militia. 
Failure to do so would result in military and economic sanctions. China and Pakistan abstained from voting. The next month of August 2004 saw a report by the United Nations detailing the inflation of IDPs in Darfur from approximately half a million at the beginning of the year to about 1.2 million by August of the same year. Right now we are talking about 2004. I mean from the beginning of the year like from January to August the people had gone from half a million to 1.2 million refugees which means that even the pressure that is be, that was being leveled against the Sudanese government wasn't working because the clashes were still going on meanwhile 100,000 people were marching in the streets of Khartoum not marching against the genocide being carried out against their own countrymen but against the UN resolution that had been passed at the end of July the protesters had been sponsored by the Sudanese government which means the Sudanese government had gone out found a group of people and then paid them to protest during the same day the AU reported that it was planning a fully fledged peacekeeping mission although later the Sudanese government would call this an act of colonialism now that's interesting because i've never heard of african countries colonizing each other unless you count morocco's attempt at colonizing western sahara which we will be covering in a later episode on august 15th khartoum presented un officials with a plan delineating the actions that would take place to reduce conflict in darfur which was ironic because early in the month on august 6th the un had found concrete proof showing that the government of Sudan was complicit in the murder of civilians by the Janjaweed. Anyway, by then, African countries had had enough of the Sudanese government's empty promises, and so on the same day, Rwandan troops were deployed in Darfur to protect African Union ceasefire monitors, and four days later, the Nigerian Senate approved a plan to send 1500 troops to the AU's ceasefire monitoring force. Now what is interesting about that was have you noticed that it is 2004 and the and the Rwandan troops and the, and Rwanda has sent troops to Sudan which means it was barely what 5 years after the Rwandese genocide which means these guys were saying like they were saying what happened in Rwanda happening in another part of Africa So after the government had felt mounting pressure from the AU they finally caved to peace talks which were to be held in Abuja Nigeria on August 23rd So let's fast forward now to September 2004 when the United Nations Security Council passed resolution 1564 As usual China Russia and their lackeys abstained from the vote The resolution called for the creation of a commission of inquiry or the COI to determine whether genocide had occurred. Hold up a second. I thought they had already agreed on the genocide issue. You know for people who don't understand the meaning of the word red tape. This is a perfect example. How is it that earlier, much much earlier in the beginning of 2004 they agreed it was genocide. But now all of a sudden Oh wait a second. It's no longer genocide. We have to create a commission 
to determine whether it's genocide. The resolution also threatened possible sanctions against the Sudanese government if the latter failed to comply with the earlier resolutions. The resolution also supported expanding the role of multinational Af African Union troops in Sudan. Well, at least that one is new. Word on the latest resolution got to then got to then Sudanese president Omar al-Bashir. He claimed that he didn't fear sanctions threatened by the UN. He said, quote, "We are afraid neither of the UN nor of its resolution." I guess that quote is a direct translation from Arabic because damn, that's an odd way to say something. We are afraid neither of the UN. Why not say we are not afraid of the UN? Uh, although when he said he wasn't afraid, I can see why. Because he probably figured that the UN would just keep on having circular resolutions. And then he wouldn't have anything to worry about. Because one resolution would be released. And then a few months later, another resolution would be released. Detailing exactly what was covered in the first resolution. Now I should add that this is an emerging this was an emerging pattern in the UN's security councils actually i don't even think it was i think it still is a pattern in the UN security council's response to african conflicts see they simply drag their feet until a whole bunch of people gets wiped out and you'll notice this when i talk about the rwandan genocide this is in stark contrast to the 2011 invasion of libya which resulted in the death of Muammar Gaddafi and the utter destruction of Libya. You know what? I'm pretty certain that the invasion and how quickly the UN Security Council drafted and passed a resolution had nothing to do with Libyan oil fields or the $12 billion that Gaddafi refused to spend on French weapons. By the way, this isn't a conspiracy theory. We will cover the Libyan invasion at a later date. And we will talk about the fact that the invasion was carried out by French air and naval forces with American support. On September 22, 2004, then-Canadian Prime Minister Paul Martin lamented on the world's slow response to the crisis. He asserted that the UN had been bogged down with the legal definition of genocide. Well, that explains the circular resolutions. By the end of the month, well... Nothing had been done, so much so that in October, Kofi Annan decided that things would move much faster if he dealt with the African Union directly. He proposed four ways in which the UN could assist the AU in expanding its mission. This involved the creation of a Darfur Regional Office of the UN, not the AU. The office was called the UN Advanced Mission in Sudan, or UN, AMIS, or UNAMIS. On October 5th, 2004, then UN Special Envoy to Sudan, Jan Pronk, informed the Security Council that the Sudanese government was still sponsoring violence against civilians in Darfur. Specifically, he stated that the government had made zero progress in disarming the Janjaweed, stopping the attacks, or even prosecuting those who were responsible for the worst atrocities. Now, do you know, do you strifers remember our previous resolution that had given them 30 days to disarm the Janjaweed and other militias, failure to which sanctions would be levied 
I mean, seriously, what the hell was the UN doing? Because by now, the sanctions were supposed to have come into action. 30 days had already passed. Anyway, Jan Prong also told the, U the Security Council that banditry was on the rise and both the government of Sudan and Janjaweed were actively taking part in activities such as looting villagers' homes. That's the, whole, that's the government we are talking about. It's looting people's homes. You know, some things people say only in Africa. And as much as I feel like protesting, some are actually true. In his report to the UN, Kofi Annan insisted that the AU mission should have the power to protect displaced people or IDPs, refugees, monitor the local police, and disarm local fighters, including Janjaweed. On October 15th, the World Health Organization reported that at least 70,000 people had died since March 2004. These people had died in refugee camps of diseases such as diarrhea, fever, respiratory disease, and malaria. Just to be clear, that number, 70,000, did not include those who had died in the act of violence. These ones had died of sickness and sickness alone. You know, just, to, just for you guys to be able to imagine how bad the situation was in those camps. Moving on to November 2004, and the UN was still not working. So much so that the Sudanese government decided to try for peace on its own on the 9th. They invited the SLA and the JEM and all three parties actually came to an agreement. Well, not a ceasefire agreement. But they did agree to stop all military flights over Darfur so that aid organization could have easier access to IDP camps in the region. Meanwhile, the UN Security Council had moved to neighboring Kenya and they still couldn't agree on anything. They even tried passing another resolution that would allow them to impose sanctions on the combatants. That did not work out. On December 14, 2004, two aid workers from the British charity Save the Children were killed when, when their convoy came under fire. The UN suspended all humanitarian efforts in response to the attack, but a week later, Save the Children was forced to pull out. This prompted the UN High Commissioner for Refugees to reveal plans to build camps in Chad, away from the border in Sudan. He thought that this would protect the refugees, but unfortunately, as we'll talk about later, it didn't work out because it caused the fight to spill over into Chad. That brings us to the end of 2004. A whole year has passed and the UN has achieved nothing. And by the way, 100,000 civilians were now dead. So let's talk about 2005. Now, I know this episode is a bit longer than usual, but please bear with me because it's worth it, believe me. One of the most interesting things about 2005 is that it starts on a high note, which in Sudan at the time was pretty irregular. On January 9th, 2005, a, a comprehensive peace agreement was signed by the Sudanese government and the SPLM bringing an end to the to 21 years of civil war between the government and the rebel forces in South Sudan. We'll cover the Sudanese civil war at a later date, but the highlight of it is 
it led to the secession of the entire half of Sudan, the southern half, which later became the government of South Sudan. On January 25th, the UN Security Council's Commission of Inquiry, or the COI, released its report to the Secretary General. The report said that serious violations of international law had occurred in Darfur. But as we've come to expect in the making of this episode, it stopped short of calling it a genocide. The COI recommended that the evidence of the crimes committed be referred to the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. The acknowledgement of this recommendation would take a year. Meanwhile, AU observers had documented the Sudanese Air Force actions in Darfur, which included bombing villages. On January 29, 2005, the Under Secretary for Humanitarian Affairs at the time, Jan Egland, warned of violence and insecurity in Darfur and said that it was proving to be an obstacle to the delivery of humanitarian aid to displaced persons. Those who have been listening to this episode up until this point will notice that he had been giving the same warning for over a year now, and no one was listening. In February of the same year, Eric Reeves, a researcher based in Sudan, released the first of a two-part analysis of the UN Commission of Inquiry report on Darfur. The same, the same report that had been released earlier on January 25th. He criticized its failure to find that genocide had been committed in Sudan. Eric Reeves' work has proven invaluable to the creation of this trilogy. That's part 1, 2, and 3, of which 3 will be releasing next week and 1 is already available. By the 5th of February, things had gotten so bad that the UN Special Envoy for Sudan called for a larger international military force in Darfur. He told the UN that the Security Council was the... Uh, he told the UN Security Council that it was the only way to stop the raging violence. You need to understand, by then, all efforts, including treaties and resolutions, had failed. After the presentation, the UN Security Council started a debate on whether war crime trials should be held at the ICC. Now, there was a problem because the US was opposed to the ICC and so the debate ended up going nowhere. Okay, you see, this is the problem. The US wasn't even trying to create a solution to, their problem in, to the problem. Instead, it was creating more obstacles towards the justice process. Like I said earlier at the beginning of the show, the US constantly undermining the ICC will spell nothing but trouble for the entire world. The threat of the ICC prevents leaders of the world's banana republics from doing just about what they want to do to their people. You undermine that institution and chaos follow. Something else to think about as you listen to this episode, Sudan, just like Palestine, was a signatory of the Rome Statute, which meant that legally, under international law, those, crime, those war crimes were supposed to be prosecuted by the ICC. So what Omar al-Bashir did, because of all the things he is, he's not stupid, he withdrew Sudan's signature a few years later to stop himself from being deported and prosecuted. Now, I should point out that while the US was doing so much to stop the ICC resolution from going through, people were still dying. 
it's not like the war had stopped. Anyway, we'll talk about the Rome Statute in a, in a standalone episode. So, on March 2nd, 2005, U.S. Senator John S. Cousin, a Democrat from New Jersey, with 30, with 30 co-sponsors, introduced S-495, or the Darfur Accountability Act of 2005, calling for the President of the U.S., to impose sanctions against individuals named as probable, not definite, perpetrators of crimes against humanity in Darfur by the UN Commission of Inquiry. This, this act never comes to a vote before the full Senate. On the same day, Human Rights Watch reported that a high-level member of the Janjaweed informed its researchers that, Sudanese government, that the Sudanese government directed and supported attacks on Africans in Darfur. The government denied these allegations. On March 7th, Doctors Without Borders issued a report stating that it had treated approximately 500 women and girls who were raped between October 2004 and mid-February 2005. This number represented only a fraction of those who had been raped because, as with anywhere in the world, survivors of rape are least likely to report their assaults. By March 16th, the UN was forced to pull out of Western Sudan due to threats by the Janjaweed. They relocated to El Ganaina, which was closer to the Chad-Sudanese border. Now, <laughs> you know something, something, well, it's not funny, it's sad actually. Something sad about all these was that the Janjaweed had gotten so brave that they could threaten the UN. They could, they could threaten the UN so much so that the UN was forced to pull out. On March 25th, 2005, the UN Security Council failed to pass a resolution that would end the crisis in Sudan. Sanctions against the government, again, couldn't be agreed upon. The UN Security Council's vote on the French draft resolution to bring war criminals to trial at the ICC was also delayed. By September 2005, continuing insecurity in Darfur led to the closure of all public, public roads connected to the capital of West Darfur, El Ganaina. This effectively brought all humanitarian efforts to an end. In the same month, more than 20 villages in North Darfur were attacked by Sudanese armed forces and Janjaweed fighters. Thousands of people fled to neighboring Chad. By October, things had gotten so bad that 38 African Union team members were kidnapped by Janjaweed in Darfur. Juan Mendes, special advisor to the UN Secretary General for the Prevention of Genocide, warned of escalating violence in Darfur. On December 11, 2005, Human Rights Watch released a report on serious international crimes committed in Darfur. The report named former President Omar al-Bashir and other top leaders in the Sudanese government as people who should be investigated for, war, for crimes against humanity. By the end of the year 2005, the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, released a report entitled Child Alert Darfur. The report said that as many as a million children had been displaced by the conflict. Researcher Eric Reeves released a report echoing UNICEF findings. He argued that more than a million children had been killed, raped, 
wounded, displaced, traumatized, or endured the loss of parents and families. The saddest thing about this is that the UN had every opportunity to do something, anything, about this war, but ended up doing nothing. Please join me next week as I talk about the year 2006, the ICC, and most importantly, what led to the genocide in the first place. Now, why would neighbors who had lived together for centuries, intermarried even, suddenly turn on each other? These answers next week. If you really liked this episode, please remember to give us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you really, really liked it and you'd like to support us, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife or patreon.com slash societyofstrife. Now, I'd like to recommend, I'd definitely recommend Buy Me A Coffee over Patreon because you see in on Buy Me A Coffee, you don't need an you don't need an account and you get to decide how you want to support us because you can decide whether it's daily monthly or even annually so on buy me a coffee it is entirely up to you but on patreon you even you first you need an account and then the donations are always recurring unless you cancel after some time anyway thank you so much for listening and as always it's been a pleasure Stay safe. See you next week.